1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. See if any of these scenarios sound familiar. Can you relate to these? Sam, he made a profession of faith was baptized seven years ago. And he's been used by the Lord to see several of his friends and family members come to faith, but he has anger issues. Before he professed Christ, he would fly off the handle, berate those who did not live up to his expectations, and that even resulted in him losing a job one time. But since he began walking with the Lord, it's been better, but occasionally... He loses it at home, and he says hateful things to his wife, to his kids. And it causes him to think to himself, how could someone who is a Christian, who loves Jesus, say such hateful things to those he loves the most? He wonders sometimes if he's even born again. Another situation, Sarah, she began following Jesus as a teenager, Since then, she's been committed to the church. She's enjoyed the family atmosphere of the church. and Now she's a young adult, single woman. She hasn't been one to date around much, but she was introduced to her now boyfriend through a co-worker. She's always had the goal. She's going to save herself until married. But she got caught up in the emotion of this relationship and You know, one thing led to another. This couple know that every time they are sexually immoral, it's wrong, and they feel guilty every time, but they just can't seem to keep their hands off each other. And Sarah feels worse when she's at church, so what's happened is she's found herself going less and less to the church functions she normally would never miss. She finds herself thinking, am I even a Christian? How could someone who loves Jesus keep disobeying him like I do? Well, John, the beloved disciple, the one who was so close to Jesus, is writing this epistle to the believers in and around Ephesus and He is addressing assurance. There are some Gnostic 
false teachers who have come out from the church, who are attacking the church with their false teaching. But John says that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can have assurance. We can know that we're born again. We can know that we are His. We know that we can know that we have eternal life. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's something peaceful about having assurance in your salvation, isn't there? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, the writer says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to, to help in time of need. Now, someone who's going to draw near to the, the righteous, holy Father with confidence, they must have assurance of their salvation. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, that's coming from somebody who has assurance of their salvation. And how do we have assurance? We've talked about this for several weeks. One way is just intellectual assurance. We trust the Scriptures. God said, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I've called upon the name of the Lord. Therefore, I can have assurance that God is going to do what He says He's going to do, and I have salvation. We also have a experiential assurance, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right, that seals us, that lives within us, bears witness with our spirit that we are His children. But also there's behavioral assurance. We said this last week. God, John um, gave us a test, didn't he? He gave the church there a test and, and also us. We can have assurance of our salvation if we obey the Lord. If we live like a Christian. Are we living like a Christian? If so, we can have assurance. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 and also verse 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're not talking about work salvation. We're saved through grace by faith. Christ did the work. We're trusting the work Christ did. And salvation is a free gift given to us. His righteousness is imputed to us. It's not earned. It's imputed, given to us. So we're not talking about work salvation. But as we see here in the text, Christ saved us for what? For obedience, for good works, to live righteously. And that's what God calls believers to do. Believers live lives of obedience. Now I gave you some homework last week. Did anybody do their homework? This is that chance we had you know the that you hear the stories of the old Catholic nuns who had the the sticks and they would slap people over the hands. This is this would be the time when I'd be slapping some folks, right? Some of you did your homework. I've talked to several of you and my, the homework was this if you're visiting with us we talked about, uh, last week we studied the first part of chapter 2, verse 3 through 6, where there's 
John gives a commandment test. You can have assurance of your salvation if you live lives that are characteristically Christian. Do we obey? Are our lives characterized by obedience? Do we live our lives thinking, does this please God or not? And so I, I suggested that you, you do something that not only is going to, uh, I think, uh, help you know if you're living obedient lives or you're living Christian lives, but also give you an opportunity to share the gospel. I said, hey, somebody in your, in your cubicle beside you or somebody you work with that you're close to, you ought to ask them, tell them what we're studying, tell them what your pastor, homework your pastor gave you, say, hey, well, tell me, do, do you think I'm a Christian? And if so, why or why not? Now, some of you have, have done that and you've been encouraged Maybe some of you, that's happened and you've been discouraged. You had to apologize. Well, I'm sorry, I have lost my cool a few times and that, that's not very Christ-like. But how did it go? You ask your dispatcher. You ask your, the doctor you work for. You ask your co-worker that, live, that works beside you. Do you think I'm a Christian? Do I act like a Christian? Yeah, it may open up a can of worms, right? You may find out what they think a Christian should li live like, right? Yeah, those who have assurance live obedient lives. And today we're given a second test, a second command, and it's the command to love. See, believers live differently than people in the world, but they also love differently than people in the world. The first test was moral. Today the test is going to be social. So the point from the first point from our text, verse 7 to 11, is a new old commandment. Be light by loving your brother. Morgan read our text for us. Beloved, that's the beloved disciple writing this. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Well, where did they hear this commandment? Well, this old commandment is, of course, the law. And part of the law includes the command to love God and love your neighbor. Every Jew or every Gentile that was associated with the early church, they understood this part of the law. Leviticus 19.18 you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Very familiar text. Everybody understood that. And in fact, when Jesus came and began his ministry, he taught that as well. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets in other words if you could sum up all the Old Testament all the law all the prophets you could boil it all down two commandments love God with everything you have love your neighbor as yourself Jesus taught this the apostle Paul also taught it Galatians chapter 5 verse 14 Paul writes, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So loving other people, that's just basics. That's Christianity 101. 
That's Judaism 101. Everybody knows. Yeah, love God, love your neighbor. You know, John is this beloved disciple, but you know, John had a nickname. Anybody remember? Kids, anybody know the, any of you children? Do you remember John's nickname? And we have nicknames a lot, don't we? Right, Pooh? People ask me all the time, is that her real name? I was like, no, but that's what everybody calls her, right? No, her real name's Leslie, Leslie Hartsfield. But people call her, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> we, we, had the, we had that conversation this morning. Um, Leslie Moody, right? We, everybody calls her Pooh. It's a nickname, but we have nicknames. When I was in college, everybody had nicknames, it seemed like. All my buddies, we lived in the dorm together. Everybody seemed to have a nickname. There was Cheese, uh, there was Bud, and the reason we called him Bud is because his last name was Wiser. And it's funny because all of us were like preacher wannabes, and so nobody drank, but we just called him Bud. <laughs> kind of crazy. Uh, we had Tree. Uh, he was a good buddy of mine. I was, I'm 5'9 when I, when I was in college. Uh, 150 when I went to college, 165 when I got out. So, same 165. Well, he's 6'5, you know, 270 or something, you know. We called him Tree. So, we had all these different nicknames. One guy was named Opie. Uh, we called him Opie all the time. And some of these guys, I didn't even know what their real name was. Somebody would say, um, Brian. I'm like, who are you talking about? Oh, that's Brian Owen. I'm like, who is that? And they're like, oh, that's Cheese. I'm like, oh, okay. But everybody had a kind of nickname, right? And John had a nickname. Anybody, can you remember what his nickname was? It's not the beloved disciple. What is it? Son of Thunder. Son of Thunder. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Jesus and his brother James in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, they're called, uh, given the name, the nickname Sons of Thunder. Now, no, no other explanation is given um, there in, in Mark chapter 3 as why he called them this. But I think there's a, a telling reason, and we see that in Luke chapter 9, verse 54. Now, Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling towards Jerusalem, but they're going through Samaria, as he often does. And they couldn't find a place to stay. No one would give them a place to stay because they're headed to Jerusalem. Now, there was a, a fight going on between Samaritans and Jews. Samaritans, if you remember John chapter 4, and the, the conversation Jesus had with the Samaritan woman, she mentions, well, we think that we should worship on this mountain in Samaria. But you, speaking about the Jews, you think you ought to be, you ought to worship in Jerusalem. So there's a fight there. And because he's heading, his disciples, toward Jerusalem, nobody wants to give him a place to stay. And so the sons of thunder, John and James, they said this. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. You see this, right? That's a son of thunder. Let's give them what they deserve, right? Why do we have the nickname, son of thunder? Well, we see it here, I think, as an example. It's very thunder-like. But we know eventually what's going to happen to, what's going to happen to John? He's called the beloved disciple he's going to receive this love experience this love from Jesus and what's going to happen his heart is going to be transformed his heart's going to be changed in fact if you follow writers 
even in the Bible. Inspired writers, it seems like they have a soapbox, they have a mantra, they have a pet peeve. A lot of preachers have it. We'll talk a lot about being the church, living life arm in arm, hand in hand. I say that all the time. We just kind of have this thing that we keep coming back to. Well, John, his is love one another over and over and over in his, his gospel and his epistles. We see John writing. Now, John didn't write this on his own in his own accord, but God used John, inspiring him, but that's what he keeps coming back to. Love one another. This is an old command. You've heard it. Why is it old? Because it's from the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus, we've known this command forever. The Jews, even the Gentiles who are part of the church, they understand that now. But also it's old because probably John said it all the time. This is getting old. I've heard it. We've heard that already, right? It's getting old. But he also said there's something new about it. Why, what's, what's new about this command? He just said it was, it's old. It's not new. It's old, but... Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment. It's kind of interesting. What's new about the command to love one another? Well, at this time in redemptive history, first century Palestine, love had come down from heaven, had taken on flesh. The God-man who is love revealed himself to sinful man. What, is it, what does it mean to love? What does it look like to love? You can point and say, that's what it looks like to love. Watch Jesus of Nazareth. John chapter 2, Jesus is at a, a wedding and the bridegroom was about to be humiliated for running out of wine. Jesus took jars of water, turned the water into wine. Jesus personified love. Luke chapter 7, Jesus is his, he's in Nain and saw a funeral procession. And in the coffin was the only child of a widow. And the Bible says that he had compassion and he raised this man from the dead, gave him back to his mother. Jesus personified love. Mark chapter 1, there's a leper. Do you know about leprosy? Leprosy made you unclean, which means you couldn't live in your town. You live outside the town. You couldn't go to the temple. You were ceremonially unclean. It was very contagious. It was incurable. And not only did Jesus cure, heal the leper, but he touched him in order to do it. Jesus is love. As I mentioned before, John chapter 4, Jesus is in Samaria and talking with, of all people, a Samaritan woman. He mentioned something about her husband, and she responded saying she wasn't married. And Jesus says, yeah, I know you're not married now. In fact, you've been married five times, and the man you're living with now is also not your husband. And yet, Jesus compels this Samaritan sinful woman to come to him so she could trust him who could give her living water that would satisfy her welling up to eternal life. Jesus is very much love personified. 
John chapter 13. And Abeth, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. He's about to go to the cross. He takes his outer garment off. He wraps a towel around his waist and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Now this is the God-man who spoke the world into existence. He's obeyed the Father in every way. His every thought, his every emotion, his every deed, perfectly righteous. He knows Judas will soon, that evening, will betray him. But yet, what does he do? Takes up the nasty feet and he washes the feet of each disciple. Jesus is love in the flesh. See, Jesus, in him, love became new in the extent to which it reached and the length to which it would go. Think about it. Everyone in Israel in the first century loved their mother, loved their father. Everyone in this room, no matter what your parents are like, how well they treat you, if they're still living or not, everyone loves their parents. Everyone loves their family members and their friends. The Jews, it's very easy to love fellow Jews. But Jews didn't reach out to Samaritans or to Gentiles or to Romans. By contrast, though, Jesus extended love to the lowly, to the sick, to the unrighteous, to the sinner, to the Gentile, and yes, to the Roman. But like Christ's perfect, most complete example of love came at the cross. The Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies, yet Jesus Christ of Nazareth loved us. James Montgomery Boyce, his comments I think are helpful. He says, to what length will the love of God go? to the length at which the very Son of God will take upon Himself a human form, die on a cross, and there bear the sin of a fallen race, so that in bearing the punishment for that sin, He is alienated for a time from God the Father, and thus cries out in deep agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the extent to which the love of God goes. It is thus that love becomes an entirely new thing in Christ. So with the coming of Christ is life, death, resurrection. The early church in all generations since can say that they have seen love. All we have to do is look in the scriptures. So this Old Testament command to love our neighbor has been made new to the extent to which it reached and the lengths to which it would go. Now let's look at verse 8 again with me. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. True, you could also say genuine. I think also would be correct. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Well, Christ is the true light and those who are in him are in the light as well. 
This genuine love, true love, is in those who follow Jesus. So if we say we're in Jesus, we must be growing in our love for other people. In contrast to those who love, verse 9 and 10, those who are in darkness, those who don't love. We see this darkness is fading, it's passing away. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Darkness is, is passing away. Jesus is shining forth, but the light is not shining everywhere, is it? That's why we send missionaries to Rigby, Idaho. That's why we have the Greg family in South Asia. And here in Ephesus, there's false claimers who say they're in the light, these Gnostics. We've seen this already in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. If anyone says these things, yet doesn't do them, he's not in the line. The Gnostics, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter if you love or not. It's just we're in the flesh. These things don't matter. It's interesting, these supposed enlightened ones are the ones who are actually in darkness. But the ones who live lovingly, the ones whose life is characterized by loving others, in this person is no cause for stumbling there in verse 10. Now usually the stumbling refers to one who calls another to sin. If you think about Romans chapter 14, do we eat food sacrificed to idols or not? Well, don't eat it if it's going to cause a brother to stumble, meaning cause someone to sin, if it's going to hurt someone spiritually. But here, I think maybe, it seems to mean that the one who loves walks in the light and he abides in Christ, he doesn't himself stumble, I think. Probably is what that's referring to. This Christian who's in the light, doesn't, he doesn't miss the big E on the eye chart. We talk about that sometimes. You know, the eye chart, you have the big E. Don't miss that. That's the first one. That's the first thing you point out. Can you read the first line, please? E. It's always E, everybody. E, right, right, left, right. E, just say E. It's the big letter. Don't miss that. We can know a lot and learn a lot, and we can read a lot. We can have a lot of knowledge. We can have a lot of zeal. If we don't love people, you're missing the big E on the eye chart, man, the most important thing. We've got to love folks. We've got to be loving Verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The one who hates is like a, a lost person. They don't abide in Christ and they're in darkness and they stumble. And they, Well, what does it mean to hate somebody? I think it's kind of two forms, right? You have the active form, somebody who's malicious, speaking maliciously about somebody, wants to hurt them. I think that's when we think of hate. That's what we think about somebody who's actively seeking someone's demise, right? But there's also this passive form of hate, I think. Indifference, coldness, unconcern, exclusion. It's been written that indifference is the cruelest form of hate. 
And, and here in verse 11, John is saying if you live that way, if you have that attitude toward someone, you're actually living like a lost person, someone who's unregenerate. You hating anybody these days? 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We'll get to this in a few weeks. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. How do we know we've... How do we know we have a spiritual life? How do we know we're spiritually alive? How do we know we're born again? If we love the church, people in the church, anyone who does not love remains in death. So those in Christ will love. That's the second test. Do you love? Do you... do you love people? Do you love the church, people in the church? If you do, then assurance is the result. Second thing we see in verses 12 through 14, this is the second point, a purposeful word of encouragement. on my glasses this morning so they're a little wop jawed here gives me trouble look at verse 12 to 14 John he's been writing to these churches and it's in his work sometimes you read it it's pretty forthright you know it's pretty straightforward uh, it can be harsh at times the things we've been reading I mean think about some of the things that he's he's written if you say you know God but don't live a life characterized by obedience you're just a dog-faced liar that's what John says pretty harsh. If you claim to love God, but you're not very lovingly, you hate somebody, you're actually probably lost. That's going to be a little, seem a little harsh, you know. But, but I think this, the harshness is, is um, experienced only for those whom he had intended to be harsh for. For instance, if I say we've got a group of people and we, we take kids to uh, middle school, high school kids, we take them on mission trips, we take them to camp, and we say, look, uh, you're on your phones all the time. We're not going to take our phones on the trip, so leave your phones at home. And for, for some reason, you know, I say, well, okay, don't take your phones. And then later somebody says, hey, I think somebody's got a phone and they're not supposed to have. I say, look, 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 look. Hey, if you brought your phones, you won't go with us on the next trip. We'll just leave your rebellious tail at home because we go on trips – I'm pretty sweet and, and, and loving, I think, but when we go on trips, there's like no nonsense, you know, because um, you, you got too many people. You know, you got to keep everybody in line. But if you're like, uh, you tell the students, if you brought a phone, if I find out you brought a phone, you won't go with us again. Next year, you stay at home. You can't do what I ask you to do. Well, Aiden, he didn't bring his phone. So guess what? Aiden, he, he's not feeling, the, he's not sweating. He's not feeling anxious. He's not worried because he hasn't done anything wrong. I don't have a phone. No, I left it at home like pastor said, so I don't have to worry about it. But for the one who brought it, there's anxiety, there's discomfort, there's worry. And I think that's true for John. John's writing this to the church. He's not coming in with both barrels. Sometimes we, we read this, we think that way, but he's writing it for the church. He gives certain tests by which a believer may have assurance that they are in Christ. But he's not writing this 
to the churches in Ephesus thinking that all those people are lost. So sometimes we have to step back and remember, who's he writing? Oh, he's writing to the church. Now, are there some people who are reading this, they're going to start sweating or going to feel uncomfortable or feel bad or start struggling? Yeah. And, and so some of you maybe, as we're studying through this, the goal, the hope is that as we study this, as we talk about, oh, if your life's not characterized by obedience, you don't know God. That's what John says. So hopefully, if you're in that camp and you've yet to repent and trust Christ's work on the cross as your own, your life's not characterized by loving obedience to the Father. Hopefully, you're going to feel kind of sweat, feel a little uncomfortable, you know, you're fidgeting in your seat or thinking about something else or looking on your phone during the sermon. If you're lost, that would be the case. And maybe even if you're a believer and you've just been in a... You're, you're just walking in the flesh, kind of going through the motions. You're living a carnal, what some people call a carnal Christian life. And when we talk about these things, hey, if you hate somebody, you've got some hate in your heart towards somebody, you're excluding somebody or you're malicious or whatever, you've got that going on in your life. And we say this, well, it ought to make you think about it. Lord willing, there's conviction of sin. You'll repent and move on. But John is writing this for the church so we can have assurance. I mean, when we sing this song, we're going to sing it again, uh, hopefully if the preacher don't, don't slow down too much. We're, our benediction is going to be this blessed assurance. Isn't that a great song? Blessed assurance. And I'm looking around and I'm watching people sing. It's like blessed assurance. And for you, it's like, yeah, that's true. That's what John's trying to do. He's trying to... And right here in verses 12 and 14, what he's doing is giving an attaboy. Because he's been saying some harsh things, Jim. Jim's got type A personality. He kind of tells it like it is. I kind of do that too sometimes. But everybody needs an attaboy, don't we, Beth? Yeah, we need an attaboy. And that's what John's doing here in verse 12 through 14. He's giving an attaboy. No, I'm right to the church. So it's not like he's coming out barrels both blazing, getting on everybody's case. No, he's writing this so the church can have assurance. So we can be encouraged. Yeah, I do know the Lord. Notice who he writes to here. He writes to three different people. Little children. and Little children. Uh, I'm writing to you little children. Look at verse 12. He says it again in, in the end of verse 13. He, he says... He says something to little children. He addresses little children, then fathers, then young men. Then he comes back again. He addresses little children and fathers and young men. So all three of those groups, he, he addresses them twice, and he's giving them encouragement. The little children, well, they could be recent converts. When we read, you think about that. Well, they're probably young believers. Well, that could be the case. But all throughout this this letter, this epistle, he says young children to the church in general. So wherever you land on that, it could be immature believers or it could be this, the church as a whole. I, both, okay. But he says, what does he say? He says their sins are forgiven. And then into verse 13, he says, they know the Father. Now Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 Speaking of Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because that's Jesus is, means 
God saves, right? For he will save his people from their sins. Yeah, sinners need forgiven. We need to be forgiven. We need your sins forgiven. We need our sin debt paid. Right? Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the grave so that sinners could be forgiven. Those who confess their sin, what happens? They are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 7. We've already seen that. They are forgiven and cleansed from unrighteousness. Chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus is their advocate. Chapter 2, verse 1. He's made propitiation for their sin. And the result is God is their Father. And if that's true of us, Cody, God is our Father. And we have a relationship with Him. The little children, your sins are forgiven. You know the Father. How it is, how sweet it is to know the Father. To know God as Father. First hmm. John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Yeah, He's a... He's a father. He's a good father, a great father, a perfect father. No longer our enemy, but through the forgiveness of sins and his gracious adoption, these little children and we as well have come to know him as father. The fathers are dressed next. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And he says that twice. In verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Who is him who is from the beginning. Of course, it's Christ himself, right? And think about these, these fathers. They're the most likely the spiritually mature of the church, the, the pastors of the church, the leaders of the church. These churches led by these men who since the time they repented and trusted Christ, they've known that Jesus is God. And Jesus being God is what enables him to accomplish the work of salvation. And continuing to walk in that light, abiding in Christ, right? Allows them to resist false teachers who claim that Jesus wasn't God. And that's the Gnostics were doing, right? When their churches are told by these false teachers that Jesus, he was the son of Joseph and that the Spirit of Christ came upon him at his baptism, but, but before his Passion Week, the Spirit left him and he just died. So the blood that he shed is not that of the Son of God. The fathers know better because they've known he who is from the beginning. They know who Christ is. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah who, who died as the God-man to make atonement for sin and to give us life, life eternal. This affirmation by John is like the one the Lord gave about the church in Ephesus. There's the, the letters in Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 2, the, the seven churches there. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord speaking through the Apostle John, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. That's what he's He's affirming these, these fathers. You know him who is from the beginning. Little children, fathers, and then lastly, young men. What do you say about these young men? You have overcome the evil one. 
You have overcome the evil one. How did they overcome the evil one? He says in verse 14, look at the last part of that verse. I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. There it is again. You have overcome the evil one. How did he overcome the evil one? Oh, he just, he just got her done. Sometimes you just got to grit your teeth and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and get her done. That's not, that's not the case, right? Now, how, how do they overcome the evil one? How are they strong? Why was it say? Because they, they understood and knew the word of God. These false teachers are trying to confuse the church. Denying that Jesus was the Christ. But they overcame the enemy because of the word of God abiding in them. Made me think of Revelation chapter 2 again. God's message to the church at Pergamum. John, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. The ultimate weapon against these false teachers was this letter and those like it in the New Testament. Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit empowering people to resist false teaching, resist the enemy. And how important is it to have older men teach younger men who can stand against the erroneous teaching of the enemy? I'm excited this Wednesday, uh, on Wednesday, starting uh, August the 24th, we're going to start Beaver Kids back, and that means we're going to begin to eat together again and have Bible study. We have Bible study for kids, for students, for adults, and us adults, we're going to we're going to be meeting together this fall, getting equipped to do just that, how to help one another with the Word of God, using the Word of God in each one, one another's lives. So I'm pretty excited about that. But that's what John is doing here. He's just trying to encourage these, these believers. Hey, you, you should be encouraged. And, I, and I'll say to us as a church, we should be encouraged as well. Jenny, your sins are forgiven. Because of Christ, your sins are forgiven. Blake, you know him who is from the beginning. Chase, you've overcome the, the evil one because you have the word of God living in you. Isn't that incredible? Reese, you're strong and the word lives in you. We should be encouraged. So I'll tell you, church, be encouraged. Those of you who are in Christ, you, your sins are forgiven. You know him who was from the beginning. You know Christ. He is your Savior. You've overcome the evil one. You're strong, and the Word of God abides in you. Be encouraged, church. I'll say if your life isn't characterized by love for the church, then you're walking in darkness. And I'll challenge you by way of application to... Repent, turn from your sinful ways and trust Christ's work on the cross as your own. John 13, 34 through 35. Lastly, for the church, 
Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the world knows we're Christians if we love one another. Also, by having love for one another, we Christians know that we are Christians. That blessed assurance. Is your life characterized by love for the church? We should be encouraged this morning. We've got several in our church that are that are sick. Um, Mr. Jerry Sanders, he has cancer. He wasn't able to take his radiation on Friday, his treatment, because he's got a blood infection. So they're giving him IV antibiotics. He's at home. Uh, I, I, I couldn't get in touch with Miss Marianne. She might be listening now. If you're listening, Miss Marianne, send me an update, will you? But. So, so what do we do? You're like, well, what do we do by way of because Let's love one another. Mr. Jerry, he's sick. He's pretty bad sick. Thank for the medication, the treatments he's been able to receive, but he's, he's sick. And so let's love on him. Morgan and Kayla are going to go by and take him lunch, spend some time with him this week. If you want to write something or send something or cook something, you can do that. Think about Dan Miller. Uh, he's at home with his mother. She's on hospice. She's in her 90s. battling dementia for some time. They've been caring for her. Dan and his brother Sam. and Day in and day out. And she's in her last days. I think maybe today. will be her last day. Okay. Just Dan, um, mom, Miss Marianne's mother-in-law just passed away. So, hey, church. Let's love Diana, and Marianne and Sam. Let's love them, right? Let's do what we can for them. Haley and Shelby Honshells um, in Florida with their family, a grandmother, her mother. Last night, her mother's house burnt to the ground. Didn't get anything. She's got whatever she's got in Florida. And so we're going to have an opportunity as a church. We find out information, we'll get it to you, but we're going to have an opportunity to love that Love those two girls and love their mother. Yeah, let's, let's love. Let's love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, right? I'm going to read you just verse 2. Talking about love, defining love, Steve. It says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Don't miss the big E on the eye chart. No matter what we do, no matter how zealous we are, no matter how much we know, no matter how much we want to do for the Lord, if we don't love folks, we're missing the point. But as we love, we should be affirmed. We should have assurance that we know Him. We are His and He is ours. We're going to be dismissed. Come on up, praise team. Let's Let's sing us out the door today. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us, man, we're so glad you're here. Drop that guest card in the offering box. We won't hound you. We'll send you a message or two. But we would like to reach out to you. Y'all stand with us. Let's sing and we'll be dismissed. We've got a couple of, couple of meetings today, right? We've got a shower at 2. We've got a church council meeting right here following service.